This is the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman, brought to you by the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, Art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman CPA, and I am Art Wiederman CPA. Uh, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for listening. Um, I am a dental-specific CPA located in Southern California in the city of Tustin. We represent about 250 dentists in our CPA practice, probably about 175 uh, practices. Uh, I've been a dental CPA for 35 years. That's a long time, uh, just past 35 years in September. And uh, we are coming up on our one-year anniversary on the podcast. I am so proud of the work. I am so thankful to all the people who have helped me from my producer, Jody Smith in Atlanta, uh, to my marketing team at HMWC CPAs, my CPA firm, and to all the wonderful men and women who have come on to our podcast. And I'm excited about year number two. Uh, And quite frankly, I'm uh, very excited about this show. I also want to share some information with you before we we, we talk about uh, our show today. Um, I am a proud member of the Academy of Dental CPAs, 24 CPA firms across the United States that represent over 9,000 dentists. So if you want to get a hold of me in my office in Tustin, my number is 714-259-0505. My um, email, if you want to email me, is artwiederman at gmail.com. Our website is www.hmwccpa.com. Uh, dot com. Go to the resources tab, go to the podcast tab, and all of the podcasts will be there for you to listen to. And again, if you're looking for a dental-specific CPA, I'm the member in Southern California, north of San Diego. We have a great member firm in San Diego. Go to our website, www.adcpa.org. Well, I have a treat for you today. Um, we have a wonderful oral surgeon client of ours uh, who happens to be very much into organized dentistry. My guest today is Dr. Edward Balasanian. Dr. Balasanian uh, is an oral surgeon uh, with his uh, partners. I'll introduce him in a second. But he is also the president of the Orange County Dental Society. Now, here in California, we have about, as I understand it, and Ed might correct me, about thirty to 32,000 dentists, which is about 20% of the dentists in the United States. I, numbers I've heard, we have about 180,000 dentists. And uh, Ed is the president of our dental society, which has about 2,400 members. Uh, we have about 3.5 million people who live in, uh, in uh, Orange County. So we're going to not only talk about uh, what's going on in organized dentistry today, of which Ed's got his finger on the pulse by uh, being involved not only in the Dental Society here in Orange County, but also in the the California Dental Association. Uh, And we're also going to talk about what's going on in oral surgery because Ed and his partners are on the the cutting edge. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, about Ed. Uh, Dr. Balsanian got his bachelor's degree in biology from Cal State Northridge. Uh, I went there for a year and a half. Uh, great school in 1997. Uh, he got his uh, DDS degree from uh, UCLA in 2001. Uh, and he uh, did his six-year uh, MD oral and maxillofacial surgery residency program at the University of Pennsylvania. He got his medical degree in 2004. His oral surgery uh, training completed in 2007. Um, at that time, he joined the practice that he is currently a partner in. Uh, which is called um, the Orange County Centers for Oral Surgery and Dental Implants with his partners, Dr. Dave Cummings, Dr. Jeffrey Caputo, and Dr. Dave Nichols. Four really, really great guys. I love working with them. Um, Dr. Balasanian also does um, has done surgical mission trips to Mexico and Armenia. Uh, and, as I, and he is also the chief of staff elect for uh, CHOC uh, Hospitals at, at Mission. Um, and like I say, he's the president of the Orange County Dental Society and, and an all-around great guy. Uh, Dr. Ed Balasanian, welcome to the Art of Dental Finance. Thank you, Art. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank, thank you for taking your valuable time. Now, 
I know there's a story about uh, that you, I want you to share with our audience. And how did you first decide to become an oral surgeon? Uh, that goes back to dental school. So, uh, you know, obviously during dental school, you do lots of rotations in all the various specialties. And uh, I, I found myself having an interest in oral surgery. Uh, and a lot of it has to do, I, I should give him some credit here, Dr. Alan Felsenfeld, who is a uh, oral surgeon, oral surgery faculty at UCLA has been a mentor to many people. Uh-huh. Uh, and he really supported me and promoted me to pursue my interest in oral surgery and took me to the OR with him one day, the operating room. And so here I am in the operating room. I think I was a, a second or third year dental student and I got to watch a corrective jaw surgery where uh, Dr. Felsenfeld and his resident were surgically repositioning the jaw bones to correct a, uh, I think it was an overbite or an underbite situation. And when I saw that, that just gave me a completely different perspective on what dentistry is, what oral surgery is, and the impact it can have on people. So uh, that's kind of when I got the bug, and uh, I haven't been able to get rid of it since. Uh, it does sound that way. Well, I know Alan Felsenfeld very well. First of all, he's one of the funniest guys you're ever going to meet, isn't he? Uh, he? This is true. I, I just spent a weekend with him in Sacramento at our CDA House of Delegates, and he's still the same guy. He's the same well, you tell Alan Felsen, I haven't talked to Alan in a while. You tell him I said hello. He'll, he'll certainly remember me. So I, I want to start talking about kind of organized dentistry and what's going on. I mean, we, we know that uh, uh, the profession that you and I know and love is has got, like every other profession, has its challenges and, and things like that. But let, let's start talking about, you know, why, how does organized dentistry bring value to its members and, and is it still relevant? You know, it's it's a really good question, Art, and I and I have to say yes, a really resounding yes, because we are in turbulent times uh, throughout healthcare, and obviously dentistry is is a part of healthcare, and so there's changes in the landscape, both in terms of third party payers, uh, legislation, scope of practice, uh, et cetera, and all these areas. Uh, really, organized dentistry is the voice of our profession. So, you know, together, our collective voice is obviously going to be much more impactful. And that's what I've really learned in my, I think it's now eight years I've been participating with the Orange County Dental Society, which is a component of the California Dental Association. And I've learned that really it's our collective voice that has power. And right now, there's a lot of legislation, legis- legislative efforts underway that CDA is um, really taking on. And that's only going to benefit all of dentistry, you know, not just member dentists, but all dentists will benefit from that. So so what are some of the hot topics in organized dentistry right now, Ed? Well, on the leg- on the uh, legislative front, uh, one of the biggest issues that came has come up and uh, is being addressed is uh, direct to consumer dentistry. Uh, there's uh, several companies and uh, I, I don't want to name any specific ones, but there are several companies that are now pursuing direct to consumer dentistry uh, with uh, kind of a telehealth model. And that has some pros, but definitely has some cons that need to be addressed. And so the CDA uh, is uh, really looking at that and has worked with legislators to come up with laws to make sure that patients are being protected and being served the best way possible. And by doing that, they're also serving our membership. Um, and the second one I'd point to is a, a dental a dental plan transparency. So currently, uh, health plans are required to be very transparent as to what kind of benefits they offer, don't offer, what's covered, what's not covered. And people are maybe accustomed to seeing that at at their annual uh, enrollment period where you see a matrix with all the pros and cons and benefits listed. Dental plans are not held to that same standard, which really doesn't make sense. So CDA has been really uh, putting forth a strong effort with the legislature uh, to get that done so that dental plans will also be have to be as transparent as the health plans are. And they're also working on uh, what's called a medical, uh, sorry, dental medical loss ratio. Uh, so the way that you think about that is that the currently there's a medical loss ratio, which requires health plans to spend 80, 80 cents of every premium dollar towards actual care. That requirement does not exist in the dental uh, insurance industry. So the CDA is working to uh, bring that to fruition because that would be a, a real game changer for for patients but as well as our member dentists. So uh, that's kind of a big big deal that's uh, that's under underway at uh, CDA. Yeah, and and you know, we we see that because a lot of the um, some of the uh, insurance companies, one or two of them, are, are not for profits, and their information is available. And uh, I, I I doubt with some of those companies that it's an eighty twenty ratio. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh, it, yeah. it, it it's kind of tough. 
What, what about continuing education um, through organized dentistry? How is that changing? Well, you know, right now there's there's so many different ways that dentists can get their continuing education. Uh, there's online sources. There's a multitude of study clubs in almost every town, um, often sponsored by specialists like myself. Um, but CDA is still at the forefront of that. And the two big events that I would highlight for people is the uh, CDA Presents in Anaheim and San Francisco. These are uh, two events that occur every year. Uh, that really it's a great convention. It's one of the the most uh, sought after conventions in the in the in the country, probably uh, maybe second to the ADA convention. And uh, just by being a member dentist, you can show up, you can walk the convention floor, you can go to a lot of great CE. You can essentially fulfill your CE requirement uh, at this one event. And uh, I'll, I'll I'll put a little plug in there for Orange County Dental Society. We host a, a great um, hospitality suite where our members are invited to come and. Uh, take a break from the convention, have lunch, and you know, hang out together and share some stories and catch up with people they haven't seen for a while. So, uh, I think that just really highlights what you know what organized dentistry is is still doing for its members, and it certainly is uh, very meaningful. I, I've been fortunate enough that CDA has asked me to speak. I'm going to guess fifteen, twenty times uh, between San Francisco, mostly in Anaheim, and, and I see the quality of speakers that come to the CDA convention. I mean, it's right up there with the, uh, you know, with, with the New York and the Hinman and the ADA and, and all those. And it's a, it's a fabulous, fabulous, uh, uh, convention. And, um, so, um, talk about uh, a little bit about what's going on in peer review that you're seeing. Well, peer review, as you may know, is a uh, wonderful service that's provided for member dentists uh, through the CDA. And this is basically where any patient that has, uh, you know, something didn't go well or they have a complaint, they can file through the peer review process. And a, pa- a panel of dentists is assembled who are calibrated and well-trained to review the case and help the patient and the dentist who's involved kind of come to terms. Uh, sometimes that's on behalf of the patient. Sometimes it favors the dentist. But it's really a fair and equitable way to help our member dentists manage these situations, which are rare, they're not very common, and um, and avoid, you know, the agony of any kind of litigation or anything like that. So uh, it's a great service that is really one of the things I always highlight to people, especially young dentists that I talk to about why they should be members and why they should join, because, you know, heaven forbid you need this kind of thing, but when you do need it, uh, it's, it's a really meaningful thing to, to be able to participate. And that's really only for members, you know, so if you're not a member, you can't get through the uh, peer review process, and uh, those those issues would have to be managed in other ways. So, uh, how how has the um, uh, the membership in CDA changed? Is it is it going up, going down, kind of staying flat? So, membership, uh, and I do have to correct you a little bit. You said I think thirty to thirty two thousand. The membership is about twenty seven thousand. Okay. Um, and uh, which is, you know, it's it's significant. We are the largest association in the country. Uh, Orange County Dental Society is the largest of all the cal- components in California. And uh, we're, we're actually larger than a lot of state societies in uh, Orange County by itself. Absolutely. Um, and, and the membership, I will say, uh, you know, we look at these statistics on a monthly basis and uh, our, our, our membership is aging. I will say, and some of our younger dentists are not as apt to sign up right away the way most of us did right out of dental school. It was kind of a given that you'd belong to your professional association. Uh, that's not happening as much uh, because of some of the other things that are changing in our in our dental landscape, such as the growth of uh, group practices or uh, DSOs, et cetera. And so we, I think that's the next big challenge for organized dentistry is how do we convey the value of membership, particularly to our younger uh, dentists, those are who are earlier in their career, so that uh, they understand the value and join. Uh, because you know, having a, our membership age and some of them retire out could really affect our, our membership and then uh, affect what CDA can do and can't do. I mean, I, w- I would think Ed that that those reasons that you gave, which are very valid valid reasons why membership is maybe flat or maybe down a little bit, that would be reasons for young dentists to want to join. You know, whether you're talking the California Dental Association or the Arkansas Dental Association or the New York, whatever it is, I mean, your your state and local societies, I mean, that that's the life's blood of, of your profession, isn't it? 
It really is. Uh, I think that, you know, part of being a professional is, I think, is being able to belong to a professional association, uh, a body that pushes for the highest of professional standards that promotes safety, that promotes uh, the safety of the public um, and advocates for the profession. But sometimes, and, and, and I'm not picking on anybody, but sometimes people kind of lose sight of all the, all the work that's being done on their behalf because sometimes it's not as tangible as you like. But the work is there. The value is there. And I think our job, those of us who are maybe a little bit further along in our careers or who have been involved, is to just talk to as many people as possible, as many of our younger dentists in particular as possible, and try to convey to them the value of what organized dentistry is, what it does, and how it will directly benefit them um, over the course of their career. And my experience is that when I do have that opportunity, when I can sit down and speak to a young dentist, who's new into practice, and I go over all these points, inevitably they sign up. I, I, I really, it's rare that somebody doesn't, but um, taking the time to do that, I think, is, is a valuable thing. And I would encourage all member dentists to do that whenever they can. I never remember the term. I mean, uh, it, uh, Dr. Bruner is still president of CDA, right? Is, is it, does this term... Yeah. Yeah. His, and I've known Dell for 25 years. He's one of the nicest human beings you ever want to meet. Um, yeah. his, his term is what, one or two years? I know he started at the beginning of the year. It's a one-year term. Yeah. So this is, uh, he's concluding his year here coming up in uh, next month. And, and I'm sure that, the, I mean, between you and your busy oral surgery practice, I mean, you probably spend a good amount of time uh, on being president of the Dental Society. It's like being president of a, a, of a church or a synagogue. Yeah, you know, it does take a bit of time. It, it is a commitment, uh, but I, I'll be honest, I think I've gotten more out of it than I've then, um, you know, I, I put a lot into it, but I've also gotten a lot out of it. Um, and the biggest thing I've taken away from it, which I think is one of the things we didn't talk about, is the idea of camaraderie and mentorship and friendship among colleagues. You know, there's uh, there, there's real value in that when you can sit with members and discuss, you know, how your day was. And, uh, you know, they can they understand your pains and, and agonies and, and your victories and they can appreciate what you're going through and every. And we'll share, you know, hey, this happened. How would you handle this? And particularly with some of our more experienced uh, members, you know, they give great advice. And so, you know, going to a CE event in Orange County and sitting across the table from somebody who's been doing this for 20 or 30 years and having a meal and picking their brains, uh, there's real value there. So, um, yes, it does take time, whether you're president or just a member, uh, to be a, an involved member. Uh, but I think there's real value there. So for me, it's definitely been a worthwhile and, and i would strongly strongly urge all of you uh who are just getting started in the profession and i speak to the dental schools at usc and ucla and loma linda and i talk to hundreds of young dentists every year and i would strongly encourage you to get involved in your profession because if you it, it, it's kind of like if you go you know you, you look at our current government and you look at and i'm again i'm not making any political comments but you look at the stalemate and you look at all the fighting and you just say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, if you don't get involved, you can't help. So, you know, that, that that's something you should all be thinking about. So, Ed, I know that here in California, we have, well, not California, all over, we have TDIC slash IS, the Dentist Insurance Company. Talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, so uh, TDIC, the Dentist Insurance Company, and TDIS, the uh, Dentist Insurance Solutions, um, is a... A uh, company is a subsidiary of the California Dental Association and is the company that provides primarily malpractice insurance for all member dentists. So in order to, to obtain TDIC coverage, you do have to be a member, which is one of the one of the bigger reasons that a lot of people do sign up. Um, but it, it's, it's a great resource. It's a member centrally owned malpractice company. And that company has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, it's now providing uh, insurance products to, I think, in 16 or 17 states. Wow. Uh, and so we've, we're growing outside of California. We're helping other dental societies or associations <clears throat> obtain the, the best coverage possible for their members. Um, so, I mean, it, you talk about benefits, uh, doesn't get any bigger than having TDIC insurance. Well, and, and we'll add to that the dentist service company, which is all over the place now. And, um, because, you know, costs, one of the biggest challenges that my dentists have had over 35 years, Ed, is, you know, uh, when you're dealing with insurance companies who in many cases are limiting 
reimbursements and um, just just being difficult. Uh, the overhead doesn't go down because you're only getting 60% of UCR. So talk a little about the uh, dentist service company. Um, well, the the dentist service company is, is a great thing now. It's, again, a subsidiary of the CDA. So it is a CDA-owned company. And uh, basically, think of it as a group purchasing uh, model. So it, it provides the commonly used products in every dental office uh, that are direct to dentists. So our members can sign on. It's a it's a web portal uh, that you can sign on to, and you can load up on all the products that you would commonly use in your practice, and you get them at a much uh, significantly discounted rate because we're essentially cutting out the middleman. We're, we're, we're providing it directly to our members, and so our members are saving uh, collectively millions of dollars. And uh, TDIC has now expanded to, I think, in 47 states, I heard. Uh, they've, uh, we've acquired a distribution center. We've acquired some other small distributors. Um, and really the, the, the whole thing behind it is that as groups form, as more group practices form and the DSO model continues to grow at a, at a steady pace, those groups have the advantage of economies of scale, right? So if they're buying products for 5, 10, 15, 20 or more offices, obviously they can negotiate with their vendors to get better discounts. And so what TDSC does is it empowers our members to do the same. And so now we're, we're taking advantage of those economies of scale and providing a great benefit for, for the membership. And if you have a million... I it, I would encourage everybody to do so. Yeah, if you have a million-dollar practice, doctors, and you can save 1% on your dental supplies of your gross, that's $10,000 in your pocket. That almost funds... Now I'm putting my CPA hat on two individual retirement accounts. So, yeah, it's definitely something you should be looking at. And one of the things you and I talked about before we went uh, live with the podcast, um, Ed, was advocacy. Again, as I tell my listeners, if it's more than two syllables, I'm in big trouble. Advocacy. So um, talk a little bit about how the organized dentistry helps being to be an ad- advocates for, for, for dentists. Well, you know, there's like, like I said earlier, there's a lot of things going on on the legislative front, uh, whether that's scope of practice, um, you know, dealing with third party payers, uh, insurance companies, um, et cetera, challenges to, for example, um, the anesthesia model that oral surgeons are using. Um, so there's a number of areas that require attention. And the only way we could gather enough resources to put forward a basically a lobbying effort on behalf of our members as if we all acted together. And that's what organized dentistry does. Um, and, I, and I spoke about a couple of those things earlier, but I do want to highlight something that maybe people don't think of as advocacy, but it really is. And that's the CDA CARES event. So CDA CARES is a free dental clinic that's done uh, once a year, typically. I think this last one was in San Bernardino. And it's an event where member dentists, their staff, auxiliaries, et cetera, will volunteer their time. CDA puts up, it's usually in a convention center. Last year, we had it in Orange County at the Anaheim Convention Center. And we'll see thousands of people who don't have the resources, the insurance, the money, whatever it might be, to get routine dental care. And so thousands of people will come through, get some of the care that they need. Obviously, we can't take care of everything, but this includes you know, hygiene, simple restorative, um, lots of extractions. I was at Nanaheim last year, did lots of extractions with, uh, with a lot of my uh, staff came with me. And it, it's altogether a great event. So we're taking care of the public uh, who, who, who otherwise wouldn't get the care they need. Now, the advocacy part of that, though, comes in is that we are highlighting and throughout that process, the need to include the dentistry in any talk of comprehensive health care. Because good health and good dental care go hand in hand. It's, it's rare that you see somebody who's got a, a mouthful of uh, dental problems who's also in good health. Th- those things kind of go together. And so what CDA CARES does is it highlights this deficiency in our healthcare system. And now legislators are taking notice. And they're actually coming to the events. They're coming state assembly folks, uh, state senators, um, you know, city, city mayors, uh, they're coming to these events. They're walking through, they're meeting people 
who need care are not able to get it if it wasn't for CDA uh, CARES events. And that is spurring them to go back to, you know, Sacramento and work towards providing better dental benefits. And so, you know, that it may not seem as advocacy right off the bat, hosting a charity event, but it really is. And uh, so I would encourage everybody again to, you know, look out for these events and come come chip in a little bit because it does help all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let, let's just spend a little bit of time and then I want to get into into oral surgery and, and have you share with us what's going on in, in, in your profession. Um, just some of maybe the changes in the dental landscape, we might've touched on a little bit, things like education costs and career choice and group practice, maybe, maybe touch on some of the, some of the changes that, that you see that you hear through your organized dentistry action. And also you talk to hundreds of dent, general dentists, um, in, in your oral surgery practice. So you're hearing them talk about stuff too. What are, what are some of the things you're hearing? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a unique position because like you said, I have, um, I'm president for our dental society, so we have you know 2,400 members. I, I go to all of our CE events this year in particular. I was at all of them, met and spoke with hundreds and hundreds of our members. Uh, our group has been around for well over 30 years, well-established in, in Orange County, and as a result, we have hundreds of referrals. People, we, don't, we, we call them friends. They're not really referrals at this point. Um, and so, yeah, I, I speak with a lot of dentists. I also speak with a lot of uh, dental specialists. Um, and dental specialists are kind of unique because because of uh, the referral patterns that we typically uh, have seen and, and experienced, we do have our finger kind of on the pulse as to what's happening. And so a couple of things that kind of have stood out to me as changes in the dental landscape is, and everybody knows these, these are not uh, you know surprises, but one of the big things is the uh, cost of education. The cost of education, the dental education has skyrocketed. Uh, to where now I think the average dental student graduates with at least $300,000 of debt, if not more. Um, and that really influences the career choices that they make. Uh, it really does promote the group practice model being a more uh, easier model to jump into and kind of hit the ground running versus taking on the challenge of a private solo practice the way, the way most people have done in the past. So we have increasing uh, educational costs. We certainly have increasing cost of doing business in general, whether that's labor costs, materials, um, real estate, you know, whatever have you. There's, you know, increasing burdens in all areas with uh, HR being compliant. uh, All those things add to the burden of uh, practicing. And then, of course, we have a declining or static reimbursement rate from our third party payers. Right. You know, third party payers really are using a fee schedule that was from the 1970s. Uh, the benefit amount hasn't really changed. And so if you add up all three of those things in particular, they really make practicing these days kind of challenging. So I think the uh, what we have to do as a profession is start to take notice of that and respond accordingly. And that's, again, where I, I look to organized dentistry to kind of lead the way. And point to people what's and and we're and we're doing we're we're working on all the things I just mentioned uh, are being worked on through organized dentistry, but these are not easy things to um, you know to address, and will take time. No, and, and I think it will all be very positive. And we need we need young people coming out of dental school to get involved and not say, well, it's not my problem or I can't help or there's nothing I can do. There is always something. Ladies and gentlemen, that you can do to help your profession. All right, Ed, let's let's jump into. Um, well, before we do that, if if anybody has any questions for you, you 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 indicated you might give out your uh, your email address if they want to email you with questions. What, what's your email address that you'd be yeah, willing to share? Absolutely. So, number one, our, our practice website um, has a lot of information. If anybody wants to look there, it's uh, oralsurgeryteam.com, like basketball team. Uh, my partners and I definitely function like a team. So we, we got that website, oralsurgeryteam.com. And my personal email is uh, Dr. Balasanian, D-R-B as in boy, A-L-A-S-A-N-I-A-N at oralsurgeryteam.com. So yeah, I welcome anybody who's got some questions or comments uh, they want to bring bring to my attention. I'll be happy to take them. And having gotten to know Ed uh, in the last several years, he is one of the most forthcoming, helpful uh, dentists I've ever met. And um, 
Uh, I, I'm proud that uh, he's a client of our practice and, and his group is a client of our practice. And um, I'm glad he's I'm glad he's talking to me right now. So let, let's get into oral surgery. So I think the first question I want to ask you Ed, is uh, how um, how can oral surgeons, how do they bring value to their referrals? It's uh, uh, a really good question, Art. I, I think the the traditional uh, view of specialists in general has been one that, you know, referrals, referring offices, typically general practices, send patients, but they don't get a lot back. Um, and I think in today's world, uh, our specialty practices have to really create a reciprocal pattern of uh, giving back to our referring offices. And there's a number of ways that that happens. Um, the first one is to really create a relationship with our referring offices that makes our office an extension of theirs so that the patients are flowing in between our offices uh, and, and all the information, whether it's radiographs, the referrals, the notes are being transmitted seamlessly. So the patients really feel that it was the most smooth uh, process possible. And the value that that brings to a referring office is the patients now know that, hey, you know, when, when Dr. X referred me to, let's say, you know, Dr. B, everybody calls me Dr. B, he was really looking out for me. He knew exactly these guys have done this before. And, and that creates confidence. It promotes uh, patient retention. That patient's more likely to go back to Dr. X now uh, because we held up our end of the deal. And so that, that is, that, there's a lot of value in that. Uh, beyond that, though, I think that what I and my group have really done is we don't promote ourselves as, as the specialist in the model. We promote ourselves as one of the specialists. So we have taken to referring to our referring restorative doctors as restorative specialists because we feel that we are all really specialists in our own area. So I'm a surgical specialist, but I couldn't, my work would be, mean, would be meaningless if I didn't have a restorative specialist to, for example, in the area of implants to complete the treatment that I have started. So we, we promote, we highlight our referring doctors, um, and we're also now going with uh, direct-to-public marketing uh, to attract patients to our office. And one of the big reasons we do that is it create, gives us the opportunity to now refer those patients to our restorative colleagues. And so, again, we're just trying to reciprocate uh, in every way we can uh, with our referring offices to bring value to them. So that, you know, they have they have a number of specialists they can work with and any specialist wants to stand out. And we've we've come to the conclusion that the way we can stand out is just to bring as much value to our referrals as possible, whether that's by taking the best care of their patients, which is obviously what we're going to do, but also uh, promoting them in the eyes of our and the patient as, as our as a fellow specialist in the area that they're doing and then trying to market to the public so that we can attract more patients to our practice and then refer them to our referrals. So those are some of the things that we're trying out. And, um, and, and so far it's been a, it's been a good thing. Because, you know, I mean, lots of people know um, what an implant is and, and how it works. And, you know, if you can educate the public, um, th that is another source and another way that you can share with the general dentists who have a lot of the challenges that you, um, uh, that you also uh, talked about. Um, and um, so let, let's talk now a little bit about what's going on in the oral surgery world. Um, uh, you talked about direct-to-public marketing, um, referring back. Um, how about anesthesia? Uh, talk a little bit about that, uh, how it makes oral surgery unique. Uh, it's under some scrutiny and stuff like we've talked about. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so... Uh Oral surgeons are very unique because they are one of the few uh, if, uh, healthcare providers that are uniquely trained to provide anesthesia as well as perform a procedure at the same time. Now, obviously, that's done under the oral surgery team model, where the oral surgeon uh, works with uh, usually two to three uh, oral maxillofacial surgery assistants. These are folks that have gone through uh, dental assisting, but as well as a uh, oral surgery training program. So they're uh, trained and uh, our offices are equipped with all the necessary equipment to be able to provide safe and effective anesthesia for our patients for any number of procedures. And that could be something uh, you know, most common would be, for example, wisdom teeth. So that has been a, a very unique part of oral surgery and oral surgeons have an excellent track record uh, in what they do with uh, anesthesia. 
but of course there like anything else there are on rare occasions some some bad outcomes have occurred which have you know been brought to light and have now stirred a a discussion at the state legislative level about uh, office-based anesthesia and so you know organized dentistry again this time on the oral surgery side is advocating for our profession because we believe that our, our model is safe it's effective um, and it provides the care that people need and we don't want to put up any unnecessary uh, roadblocks people getting the care that they need uh, because every other model that we've looked at really increases the cost and the number of providers that are necessary etc so oral surgery is unique in that in in our ability to provide um, anesthesia but I will say that we are also uh, in our practice we utilize separate anesthesiologists all the time and and one of the unique things about our practice is we have an affiliation with the anesthesia group from our local hospital so uh, they have equipped one of our offices with everything they need to provide anesthesia uh, the same way they do in a hospital or surgery center setting. So for our patients that we deem uh, that need a separate anesthesiologist, we have a great setup where we can you know, call on these guys and they're basically on demand and they'll come in and we use them for sedating um, typically younger children or people who have more complex medical histories or who require uh, maybe longer procedures. Uh, and so we have, we we're, our group has taken steps to kind of stay ahead of the curve and uh, continue to provide a comfortable, safe anesthetic experience for our patients. Um, and uh, the patient safety part of it is our our primary driving factor on that. Well, and and again, you know, you, you guys, I know a lot of oral surgeons. You guys are amazing on what your knowledge is and 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 how the care is given and. You know, in the accounting profession, in the legal profession, in the medical and the dental profession, you're unfortunately always going to find one or two bad players, and that's that's just life. But um, you know what you do with anesthesia is safe, or you wouldn't do it, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like I said, patient safety is our number one concern. Yeah, uh, that's you know that's all we're here for, and uh, and and you know, but I will also say that you know sometimes you can do everything right. And still, occasionally have something go not as not as you plan, and so you have to be prepared for that. So our preparation for that is key. So uh, our and this is true probably for all oral surgeons, uh, but we routinely do drills, emergency drills. We you know with our staff so that we are prepared in the event that an emergency occurs to respond appropriately. So all that is is you know backed by years of experience and and safety being at the forefront of what we do. So. Talk a little bit about implants. I mean, implants are huge in dentistry now. I mean, it, it's big for the oral surgeons. It's big for the general dentists, and you guys working together. So, what, what's new with uh, in, in 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 implants? So there's there's a lot of things going on in the implant world. Uh, are there's um, you know implants as you know uh, are is we consider the best way to replace whether it's a single tooth or multiple teeth or or all of the teeth. Uh, in certain cases. Um, and I think the, the biggest area of uh, change in the implant world is uh, being to, able to place implants in the most accurate and precise and safe way possible. So every time we place implants, you know, we're, we're working around vital structures like the nerve in the lower jaw or the, or the sinus in the upper jaw, et cetera. And we want to place the implants with those in consideration, but also in a position where the implant can be restored in the most ideal fashion as well by our restorative colleagues. So there's been a number of ways to do that over the years, but the technology now has really come along to where uh, we're, util we're utilizing a lot more computed, computer-guided implant placement. So in order to facilitate that, our patients are, we have a, a comb beam CT scanner in all of our offices. Our patients uh, will have a 3D scan done. That allows us to sit down and, and do a virtual implant planning session on, on a virtual model of, of the patient where we can place the implant, uh, add the restorations, and, and simulate the finished product, if you will. And then based off of that, uh, we can create templates, uh, surgical guides that will help us position the implant exactly as we planned it uh, in the virtual space. And what that leads to is a quicker and more efficient surgery, which then means less pain and swelling for the patient. But on the restorative side, uh, it means that our restorative colleagues can will be able to finish the case in a much more predictive 
uh, an effective way. And the, the greatest part of it is it's a great communication tool. So once I have the patient scanned and I've got them in the virtual model, um, my restoring dentist and I can sit down or do a web meeting and place the implants, add the restorations. You know, he or she will say, you know, let's move it this way or that way. And I'll say, well, I, I can do that, but I can't do this because of the nerve or this or that. And together we're developing the plan so that now we're both on, we're both on the same page. And so to me, that's a, that's a real big advantage, uh, being able to plan and execute these cases based off of virtual uh, implant planning. And now we have the next generation of that, which is uh, navigation-guided implant placement, uh, where in real time you're, you're seeing exactly where you are uh, as you're preparing the implant site. And there's even robotic-assisted implant placement now. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of technology going into implants now. And what it's doing is it's, it's lowering the threshold to where people are comfortable placing implants. So the end result of all that is that we're seeing that the, the people who are placing implants is not only oral surgeons and periodontists. Now there's endodontists and prosthodontists and a lot of general dentists. Yep. So I think it was even a couple of years ago that uh, the the from the uh, over 50% of all implants were being placed by general practitioners. Wow. Which I think is great. Right. This is a you know it's a great service in, in somebody's practice. Um, it's definitely good for revenue. Uh, patients love the convenience of being able to be treated in a single office for, for something like that. And so I, I think that all these tools that are coming out are, are making that a little bit easier to do, um, lowering that threshold. But again, I think case selection is the key, and that's where uh, our referring offices will often look to us and say, okay, hey, we're, I'm doing some implants now too, Ed, and, but I want to review some cases with you. I want to see which ones I should do and which ones I should send to you. And so we sit down, we collaborate, and we're uh, our philosophy is, you know, we're here to help, uh, and we're happy to do that anyway. So I do that with a lot of people. You know, we'll sit down, and my, my partners do it, and uh, we'll go over cases, and we'll figure out which ones are kind of in their wheelhouse and they're comfortable doing, and which ones will be better to be done in our offices. And so, you know, that, that's, that's how the uh, field is evolving. So pretty soon we're going to have drones coming and placing implants. You put the implant on the drone, they just come in, they put it in, they leave. Is that how it's going to work? Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Maybe not drones. Yeah, <laughs> you won't be able to order your implant on Amazon. So, darn it! I can order everything else on Amazon. My goodness. Yeah, just about everything else, so, but not your dental implant. That's right. So we we know Ed that the um, obviously the opioid the opioid crisis in this country has reached epic proportions. It's it's horrifying watching the news and you see these cities and these young people. And so talk a little bit about what you guys do as far as, you know, pain management and, and, and fighting this. Yeah. So, you know, there's been obviously a lots and lots of press about the opioid crisis. And I, I think somewhat unfairly, um, a lot of doctors have been implicated in this opioid crisis. And not to say that we're, we're not without, you know, um, some, some fault here. You know, we have historically maybe been too happy to prescribe medication uh, really out of a desire to minimize or avoid pain for our patients, nothing else. Uh, but there's a number of reasons why this opioid crisis is occurring. And I will say, sure, uh, prescribing habits is probably one of them. But I, I, for one, argue that it's not not the as a big a factor as sometimes the press will make it out to be. But we have to do our part, all physicians, dentists, physicians, et cetera. And so we've always been very sensitive. I've always been very sensitive to uh, prescribing any narcotic pain medication. And historically in our practice, um, what we've done is we will often survey our patients when they come back. We'll say, hey, so, you know, we gave you a prescription for 15. How many did you use? And they'll say, well, I used five. And so I, we did this a number of years ago, and we learned that most of our patients, even after wisdom tooth surgery, which is typically thought to be kind of a painful process, uh, most of our patients were using between one to five of their pain pills. And I think a lot, a lot of that do, was due to the fact that we really encouraged them to use things such as ibuprofen or, or Tylenol or kind of an alternating regimen of ibuprofen and Tylenol, which has been shown to be very effective for postoperative pain management. And so, but, but by collecting some data on our patients, we learned that, you know what, we can be prescribing a lot less. And if we take a little bit of time to counsel our patients about how to manage pain and, and 
help them learn why why pain even exists. Right? Pain serves a purpose. So I tell all the young patients that come in and say, listen, we're going to take out your wisdom. You're going to have some pain. That's just part of the process. But the pain is there to remind you to take it easy. So it serves a purpose. Yeah. We don't want to just eliminate all pain because that's not how it works. And so you have to train them, particularly young people, how to how to manage their pain. And we found that to be very effective. So we we, we were already a very uh, conscientious about prescribing narcotics. But now one of the things that I'm really excited about and that I've been using a lot of is something called Exparel. So Exparel is a uh, long-acting anesthetic that comes in a kind of an emulsion or a liposomal form. And what we do with it is at the end of for example, wisdom teeth, which is the most common time that I use it, uh, we inject around the wisdom tooth areas with the Exparel. And what it does is it sits in the tissue and slowly releases uh, anesthesia for two to three days after the procedure. Uh -huh. So it keeps the wisdom tooth area locally numbed and comfortable so that patients end up using much less medication. So that, that helps. So I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. So what I tell the young patients is that, hey, we're going to give you this injection around your wisdom tooth area. We're going to keep that area numb and comfortable so you don't have to take a pill to numb your brain. <laughs> and so and so and, and so now what I tell the parents is uh, I'll, I'll give you a small number of pain pills, a prescription for it. But please leave it at the pharmacy. Don't take it home. Don't put it in your medicine cabinet. I, I don't want it around your kids. Right. And we tell them all the reasons why. And. Uh, our experience with Exparel has been excellent. Our patients come back, they generally get by with just ibuprofen or Tylenol and uh, the use of narcotics for uh, post-op pain, particularly in the area of wisdom teeth, has really gone down, which uh, that, is good that, for everybody. That's, that's great information. I know you do a lot of stuff, a, a couple other areas I want to touch on with you. You do a lot of stuff in, in um, uh, sleep apnea, of which uh, I are one. I, I, I sleep with a CPAP. I was telling you before the show that my my dentist in South Orange County, um, you know, diagnosed it and may very well have saved my life and probably other people. So what, what do you do in that in that area? Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite areas because I think that uh, and not that I think I know that sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing or airway dysfunction, whatever you call it, is a <laughs> highly, highly underdiagnosed problem in the general pub population. Uh, but it's a problem that is, it leads to a lot of secondary health problems, whether that's increased risk for heart attacks, strokes, hypertension, all these chronic illnesses that, that we're dealing with, and they're adding to the cost of health care. And really, I personally am biased on this. I think that dentists, um, almost all dentists, are really in a good position to be evaluating and um, asking their patients questions about the possibility of sleep disorder breathing or obstructive sleep apnea, et cetera, and making appropriate referrals to their physicians to get these folks diagnosed. Because once they're diagnosed, now they can get the treatment that they need, and it can really be life-altering for, for people. Yep. And so me personally, the way I'm involved in this is that I work with uh, several airway-focused dentists. I also work with um, pulmonologists or sleep physicians. And so for people who have airway dysfunction, obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, what my group and I do is we do what's called maxillomandibular advancement surgery. This is where we can advance the upper jaw and the lower jaw. And by doing that, we're bringing the palate, the uh, soft palate and the base of the tongue forward, and we're opening up the airway. So this is the one thing that has is as close to a cure for sleep apnea as there is. It is a big surgery. It's, you know, five or six hours of operating time in a hospital and, you know, usually two or three nights in the hospital. But um, we've done a number of these cases and it's uh, life changing. Uh, I have I think of one lady in particular who, you know, had a uh, AHI or apnea hypopnea index, which is the way you measure how severe their sleep apnea is. And it was, hers was well into the 50s. Wow. The surgery for her into the now, 50s. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, every wow. hour she's constantly she's not getting any sleep basically uh, any meaningful sleep and so now she's in, she's down to zero so here's this person who is looking at 30 to 40 years of her, their life with a sleep apnea machine or an oral appliance and those are those are fine but now her life is different you know she she we've fixed her airway and so she doesn't need those appliances or the CPAP machine 
And, and we can't cure everybody, but it, we can certainly improve their situation significantly. So uh, that I get a real kick out of that because uh, that's that's a real game changer for a lot of people. And so I'm happy to be involved in that. So is that is that the corrective jaw surgery that you and I were talking earlier about, or is that something different? Yeah, that's the thing that Alan Felsenfeld introduced me to. Yeah, that got me the bug exactly. Okay. So, um, that's, that's the other passion for, for myself and my group. Um, that's, that's part of the reason I joined this group in all honesty. When I got out of residency in 2007, I wanted to land in a place where there, we were doing all the office-based stuff that kind of, you know, pays the bills and keeps the lights on, if you will. But I also wanted to be, continue to do the hospital surgeries that we'd all trained to do. And our group is kind of unique in that they made a real effort, uh, to maintain that and keep that going. So I was very fortunate to land with this group. I have great partners. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're a very good group. And, um, and so one of the things that we've provided for decades is corrective jaw surgery. And so for those who may not be familiar with that, it basically is where if somebody has a big overbite or a big underbite, um, these are problems that can't be corrected by routine orthodontics. Because the problem is that the upper jaw and the lower jaw are not in a harmonious position. Discrepancy is too great to correct just with orthodontics. So what we do with those patients is we treat them in a very multidisciplinary approach. It usually involves uh, a good restorative doctor, an orthodontist, an oral surgeon, an anesthesiologist, a myofunctional therapist, a number of people. But the basic premise is the patient will have some orthodontic treatment to kind of put the teeth in a more idealized position within each jaw. And then the oral surgeons, us, what we're able to do is surgically reposition the jaws to correct the skeletal discrepancy. So we take somebody who has a big overbite and we fix it, or a big underbite and we fix it. And now when we do it, we do it with an attention to the airway, and we're doing it in a way to promote as, as good an airway as possible, promote good facial harmony and aesthetics, a stable position for the jaw joint, and of course, we're addressing their bite. So to me, that's, uh, that's, you know, like I said, that's why I became an oral surgeon because I saw Alan Felsenfeld do it and I said, wow, that's really impactful. And uh, those are the cases I really take pride in and uh, that we, we continue to do. Well, you're changing people. I mean, you, you are absolutely changing people's lives. I say this over and over again is that dentists and dental specialists, you know, it's not just about teeth. It's about a better it's about a better job and a better relationship and a better self-esteem and, and, and all that stuff. And, and isn't it cool when you do these surgeries, when, when you do the sleep apnea surgery, uh, Ed, about uh, people come back to you and you say, you've, you've changed my life for the better. It, it really is. And that's what makes it all worthwhile. You know, honestly, we, we, um, we all work really hard. Every dentist I know is, is they've got lots on their plate. But I think what keeps people going is their patients, right? They come in and whether it, you took, you relieved somebody's pain by removing a cavity and doing a restoration or fix somebody's uh, overbite or underbite or airway problem, um, it's the personal satisfaction, the professional satisfaction from applying your trade and seeing a good outcome and seeing the difference it makes in people's lives. So, you know, it's, and it's easy to lose sight of that in the day-to-day uh, of a dental office, you know, the administrative administrative part and, you know, the HR component now and the IT component, uh, all the things you, you've you've talked about on your podcast already. Um, <laughs> but I think we need to sometimes remind ourselves of, you know, why we do what we do. And it's, and it's the patients. Yeah, my, just for them. Without them, we have no purpose. Well, and, and my, my last guest, uh, one of my last guests, uh, Debbie Seidel-Bitke talked about the why, and it is, you know, why, why do you guys do what you do? And it, it, it is, I, I will tell you that I, again, I, I, if you'd have told me out of college, again, I, I went to your school for, to, to Northridge for a year and a half. I went to graduate from Long Beach. If you'd have told me that I was going to be working with dentists my whole career when I was in school, I would say, really? But I will tell you that, that you know, you guys and, and, and all the folks I work with, just some of the most wonderful, kindest, caring people on the planet. And uh, and the work that you do, I think is just, I, I just think it's underappreciated, but but but, but your knowledge and, and, and what you do change people's lives are amazing. Uh, touching a couple other things. So you've got, um, you know, you've got four part, you've got three partners. Okay. So uh, you and I are both married folks and we have one partner that that's, that's enough of a challenge. So you got three of them, and, and your three partners are the, the nicest guys on the planet, every one of them. 
Um, but um, w- talk to some of the folks out there who are thinking about partnership. What are some of the challenges and some of the things they should be thinking about? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, partnership is not for everybody. Um, I'll, I'll say that up front. I think our group, I love my partners. I really do. I can say that in all sincerity. They are great human beings and they're wonderful business partners. And yes. what makes it work for us is that we can sit down and hash things out. So what that means is that you don't always get everything you want. And the person in front of you doesn't always get everything that they want. But together, you come to an agreement that, you know, everybody can, can feel comfortable with. And that doesn't happen very, you know, very often, you know, where you have uh, a bunch of type A personalities. We're all surgeons, right? We're all type A personality <laughs> folks. Uh, we all think we know best. Right. Um, and most of the time we see things exactly the same way. So there's not a whole lot to discuss or, or, or hash out. But occasionally there is. And what makes it work for us is our ability to sit down in a room, talk it out, hash it out, shake hands and walk away. And, and, and this group has been doing that for over 30 years. So I was very fortunate. I fell into this group. Uh, they picked me and I picked them, I guess. And uh, they had this culture already. And that culture continues to persist. Um, and I, and I want to highlight, you know, um, our 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 founding partner, if you will, was Dr. Rex Moody, who a lot of people in Orange County sure. know. He, re- he retired in 2015. So currently we have, uh, like you said, Dr. Cummings, uh, who's kind of the, uh, and Dr. Nichols, uh, both of them are kind of our, our, our most uh, senior partners, if you will, um, or I should say experienced. I don't like the word senior. Right. Um, <laughs> Please don't say senior. I'm senior. Don't yeah, say yeah, senior. Yeah. That, uh, Dr. Caputo and I, and I joined the group uh, later. Uh, we also uh, worked with Dr. Wheeler for a couple of years uh, as our practices merged, and he retired just this past August. Dr. Robert Wheeler, who's also uh, kind of a fixture in, Orange, in South Orange County for you know several decades. Yes, he is. And uh, we also have an associate, Dr. Brady Nielsen, uh, who's working with us, and uh, he's a great addition to our group, and we're, we're working towards making him a... Uh, uh, full time with us as well. No, that's currently with us a couple of days a week. That's wonderful. Last things because we're kind of running out of time here. How about some advice? Uh, we got a young dentist who's maybe uh, you know thinking about going to dental school. They're in dental school. Why should they become an oral surgeon? You know uh, what? What I really liked about oral surgery um, is a couple. Uh, it, a couple things. Number one, when I saw jaw surgery, when I saw corrective jaw surgery with Dr. Alan Felsenfeld, who is a friend and a mentor and continues to be one, um, that really changed my my perception of what dentistry can be. Uh, but the other thing that I, I tell a lot of young, uh, you know, dental students, et cetera, who are considering oral surgery is one of the things that I really enjoy is that I can see a patient, I can work them up, I can diagnose their problem, I can develop a treatment plan. Uh, we can pick a treatment. We can apply the treatment. We can follow up on their aftercare. There's a issue or complication. We can address that. And then the loop is kind of completed, right? So you see the patient, you evaluate, you diagnose, develop a treatment plan, you treat, you follow up, and you're done. And that just appeals to my personality uh, versus, for example, you know, if you, uh, if you have a primary care physician, I'll use as an example, if they're treating hypertension or diabetes, there's no cure. It doesn't go away. You know, it just kind of continues. Right. right. Management and surgery. And just, I think this applies to most surgical specialties is it's fun because we're able to close that loop and complete, complete things. So if that fits your personality, I tell them if that's what you like versus being a, a restorative specialist or general practitioner who kind of manages these patients lifelong, um, then oral surgery is for you. If you like that idea of being able to see, diagnose, treat, follow up, and close that loop, and then move on to the next patient, and the next patient, and the next patient, um, then then this is then this could be a good good choice for you. Well, doc, we are about at the end of our time, Doctor Ed Bellasini. I want to thank you so much, not only for taking your valuable time. I mean, you you're you're a partner in a big big oral surgery uh, group. You're the president of the what might be the largest dental society in the country, if not in the top five. Uh, and you have a family. So to take your time to, to do this for, for our listeners is really appreciated. And thank you also um, for your contribution to organized dentistry to make your profession better. I really appreciate it. 
Um, well, I want to I want to thank you, Art, for having me on. It's uh, very kind of you. You 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 gave uh, a lot of compliments to to me and my group, but I want to equally say that uh, we're very fortunate to have you working with us. So well, thank you. You're very kind to say that. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to our podcast. I'm we get calls from all over the country. We heard this, we heard that. I had um, uh, I have people who uh, who run and uh, walk and uh, cycle. And listen to my podcast. I mean, you know, I mean, some of the music out there is probably better than than this. But uh, anyway, uh, if you want to get a hold of me in my office in Tustin, I'm at 714-259-0505. Email me at artweederman at gmail.com. Go to our website at www.hmwccpa.com. Go to the resources tab. Go to the podcast tab. You will see all of these uh, podcast. This one will be up, I believe, in early December. I think, Ed, you're going to be my one-year anniversary podcast, if I remember the dates correctly. Um, so that that's wonderful. And uh, if you're looking for a dental CPA anywhere across uh, the United States, uh, go to our website, the Academy of Dental CPAs. Please, you know, today's program was talking about working with specialists. Dr. Balasani and his group are specialists. Well, So are we. We're specialists in the field of dentistry, www.adcpa.org. Ed, thank you so much again. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Art. All right. And ladies and gentlemen, that will do it for this edition of The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends, write a review, tell everybody about the work we're doing, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 